brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Red Hot Chili Writers Podcast. We're your hosts, Vasim Khan and Abir Mukherjee, two crime authors ready to expose themselves on air for your titillation, edification, and amusement. We'll be talking life, pop culture, and the pursuit of the creative arts, all seasoned with just a dash of garam masala. Welcome to another episode. Right, it's impossible to ignore the elephant in the room. No, I don't mean a bear. That's rude. I mean, of course, coronavirus, a particularly insidious species of elephant. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, but we are still here, folks, to bring you a dose of good cheer amongst all the doom and gloom. And what have we got for you on today's episode? Well, we began last week by looking at political thrillers until we got sidetracked. So today we'll actually uh, examine some of the most famous works in the genre. Uh, and Abir, who's our special guest this week? Hi, Vas. This week we interviewed, well, you interviewed, I didn't do anything. Uh, we interviewed Kia Abdullah, travel writer and now author of a blistering crime novel called Take It Back, uh, which is part legal thriller, part police procedural, part cross-cultural controversy courting dynamite. Wow. I deserve a medal for saying that. Or at least a glass of whiskey. So what <laughs> have you been up to, Vas? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I'm, I've been at work uh, at UCL, the university that I work, dealing with the fallout from the corona panic. So uh, it looks as if all universities might be closed from next week onwards. We've had lots of event uh, cancellations. We've uh, ha- been told that we have to use online conferencing and meeting software. So I've been experimenting with a, a webinar software called Zoom, trying to organize uh, events through that. It's been It's been a learning experience. And I actually think that this might be a watershed moment in uh, in human history in the sense that I, hundreds of millions of people uh, over the next year will get used to working in flexible ways, working from home, using lots of these softwares to do things that they would otherwise normally have wanted to come and do face-to-face. Yeah, I'm not 100% convinced by that. I think, yes, it's going to happen. Um, it's definitely going to uh, increase. I mean, I've been using Zoom or, you know, in a work capacity for about a year or two. I think you're right. It will lead to greater flexibility. My concern is that when you're sitting in the office and you're ill and you go home and you take time off, your bosses will just say, well, well, you know what? We got through the coronavirus. You can work from home when you're, you should be, you know, resting. So that's my concern. My concern is you're right. But. It'll be used by unscrupulous bosses to make you work harder even when you're ill. Do you remember the days when you went to work, you did your work, you came home? You can't do that now. You go to work, you do your work, you come home, you check your emails, you work on your emails. You know, you're constantly on. And I fear this is another step. Yeah, I've read a couple of studies which have shown that 
working from home sometimes leads to lower productivity. And it's to do with people not feeling that they're being monitored and therefore skiving off to, to, to watch cricket. Well, nobody on this podcast, obviously. But. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Nobody on this podcast other than you, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but I think that's, that's a very fair point. I mean, when I'm in the office... There is a certain level of productivity. Now, I suppose it varies. I mean, if I just want quiet time to work on something, then being at home is fine. But, you know, the chances of being distracted at home um, for something else that I want to do is pretty high. I suppose the chances of being distracted at work by friends just wanting to chat or whatever um, so what else? Uh, no, I mean, to be honest, it's, uh, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic wasteland out there. Um, not a lot of people are travelling at the moment. Um, there's not a lot of people in central London when I go there and not even a lot of people out in the streets here in East London, which is usually chock-a-block. People, mm. I think, are genuinely following the advice and trying not to uh, congregate. Uh, so, for instance, we had cricket nets this evening, which have been cancelled. Um, mm. it, it takes a lot for a team of Asian cricketers to cancel cricket nets. Well, that's, that is a tragedy because you really need to practice, don't you? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. You, sorry, you, you, what about you? You've been stuck at home. You, um... I'm out in the sticks now in Guildford. And what can I say? Um, you know, supplies, no avocado in Waitrose. Forget toilet roll. There's no avocado. Um, there was still quinoa when I was in there last week. So it's not quite anarchy, um, but it's yeah. getting pretty bad in Guildford. Have you been stockpiling? Uh, my sisters were insisting that we should all go off and, uh, you know, sending me panic-stricken messages that their local supermarkets are, are bare and empty now and we should try and find uh, so, some, some things to stock. And I said, look, if everybody does that, uh, then absolutely, yes, of course, the damn supermarkets will be empty. But if everybody is just sensible, uh, then none of us really need to need to stock up. You're right, but when uh, you are starving and everyone else still has food, you'll still be right, but you'll be dead. Coming to your house, <laughs> but you know what? Asians, Asians don't need to stock. You, you just get one sack of rice and one big bag of lentils, and that'll do you for what a month. But we used to buy like a sack of rice, like a sandbag full of rice. Mind you, you're Punjabi, you don't, uh, yeah. Need no, no, we had uh, we had this massive drum of flour for for rotis and, and chapatis. I mean, this drum was so big, you and I could have both fit in it and left uh, left room over for Dan. But that's it. That, well, yeah, can you imagine Dan in there? I wouldn't, I'd, I'd get out. We stockpiled anyway. Well, our parents' generation stockpiled anyway. It was just called, you know, shopping for them. I tell you, I tell you what we've been doing. We haven't been stockpiling, but every time we've gone to the shops, we've just bought like one or two small things extra, like um, a bit more paracetamol, or uh, a bag of pasta extra, you know, which we wouldn't or, need. Or a bag of haggis. Which, you know what? Oh, my goodness me. Uh, I once was forced to uh, bring home tinned haggis because uh, I couldn't find the fresh stuff for Burns Night. I got <laughs> tinned of haggis. And I kid you not, you open it, it smelled like dog food. And it was, it was, it was quite tasty when you made it, but it did smell. Did I tell you about the time I looked for a haggis in Waitrose in Canadian Wharf? No. Oh, no. tell you so again. It was um, Canary Wharf, as you know, very cosmopolitan area, um, which is great, and it's reflected in the staff. But it also means that certain cultural traditions uh, are rather unknown. So I was talking to this lovely guy who was working in Waitrose, and I was looking for the haggis, uh, and I think the guy came from China or whatever. And I'm like haggis, and he didn't know what I was talking about. And he goes, Ah, haggis, and he dragged me around the shop. Uh, to Huggies, you know, the nappies. He goes, Huggies! <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 I want to eat it. You want to eat it? And and this just went on for like five minutes and I gave up. To be fair, if this this if this national emergency goes on for much longer, we will all be eating Huggies. Um. Well, <laughs> it's not, I mean, you heard the other day Boris Johnson saying that we're, we're trying to squash the sombrero. Um, so it's likely to last another 10 to 14 weeks before we get to the peak. Now, what do you think? What do you think the British approach compared to, let's say, the um, the Italian approach or the American approach, which just seems to be <laughs> Trump shouting, we're washing hands and singing happy birthday? Uh, I think this is about as divisive an issue as Brexit was. Um, I'm very much in the keep calm and there's too much hysteria and panic. And I'm worried more about the economic fallout caused by all the hysteria and panic 
yeah. uh, because that's going to affect a lot of people's lives. Uh, whereas the actual coronavirus is going to affect very, very, very few people in well, terms of the total population. Do the numbers, right? If the government says that the worst case scenario is that 80% of the population falls ill, right? Okay, so 80% of 60 million is what, 48 million? Okay, and they're saying that the mortality rate is about 1%. So 1% of 48 million is 480,000 people. That's a lot. And I don't yeah. mean to, you know, you know, upset anybody, but that, you know, if you look at it, start. I don't believe it'll be as high as that, but that's a big number. Yeah, but that's the thing; it will never be anywhere near that. I mean, the statistics around the world are very, very small in terms Absolutely. of actual deaths. Absolutely. Um, right. Let's talk about something more positive. Let's talk about some of these political thrillers. Go so, on. Uh, let me start with a, a, a non-fiction book called "All the President's Men," incredibly famous by two. Washington Post journalists Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who investigated the Watergate scandal uh, instigated by, by Richard Nixon, the, the American president, uh, back in 1972. On June the 17th, 1972, a security guard, Frank Wills, at the Watergate complex found a door bolted. Uh, the, the, the bolt had been taped over. Uh, he called the police. They arrested five burglars in the Democratic National Committee headquarters within the complex. The next morning, the Washington Post assigned Bob Woodward to the courthouse to cover the story. And it was considered to be minor, nothing, nothing major going on there. But through the investigative journalism that uh, Woodward and Bernstein became famous for, they eventually tied this break-in back to the CIA and then back all the way to the President Richard Nixon's White House counsel, uh, Charles Con Col Colson, his name was. And uh, what I loved about this particular story, I mean, obviously it led to Richard Nixon being ousted from the White House, but uh, it led to certain terms that have now become synonymous with cloak and dagger uh, operations and political shenanigans, such as Deep Throat, who was the was the uh, the, the person that, that uh, Woodward and Bernstein would meet with in a in a parking garage. Uh, and he always spoke in riddles and metaphors to try and avoid. He wanted to tell them what was going on, but he couldn't quite. And he also advised them to follow the money. And that's another thing that's become quite synonymous with the with thrillers. So that's that's my that's my well, pick for that because I am fascinated by Watergate. I'm actually fascinated by flawed politicians. So um, you know, people like Richard Nixon, Jeffrey Archer, Jonathan Aitken, um, these sort of people that had everything, you know, and yet had this fatal flaw that meant they either had to resign or ended up in prison. That fascinates me, and and Watergate is probably the most fascinating of all. Um, it's just the level of incompetence of these people that gets me. You know, firstly, apparently they taped the door. Uh, Frank Wilkes, the security guard, found it, untaped it, and then one of them taped it again. So he didn't catch them at first, right? He just found the door, and he took the tape off, and he thought, oh, maybe it's nothing. And then they did it again. They were still in the building. And then how it goes from, you know, these five Cuban-Americans to the campaign to re-elect the president, which, you know, the acronym is CREEP, which I thought was brilliant at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and they, they did, uh, they kept Deep Throat's identity secret for about, what, 30 years until he died, what, two years ago, three years ago? And I think he was overlooked for promotion. Uh, I can't remember his name now. Um, but really, that's why he went and talked to Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, go on, you pick one. Right, I am going to pick a fictional book. I am going to pick, um, let's go with one of the best thrillers in, in this particular genre, I think, is The Day of the Jackal, um, which, uh, have you read that by Frederick? I haven't Ford? read the book, but I do love the movie. The book is fantastic. It's one of these books that, you know, as a, I think it was a teenager, I must have been about 14, and it was the summer holidays, and I didn't have much to do, and I picked up this book, and it was, it just, it was amazing, it changed my view of, of what I should be reading. Um, you know, it's, it's Cold War politics, it's basically Charles de Gaulle, who's pulled um, French out of Algeria, um, and some, you know, Algerian French people decide they are going to assassinate him. Um, and they hire this British um, assassin who's known as the Jackal, who's one of the best in the world. And really, it is, it's the dual story of his hunt for 
um, de Gaulle and also The Hunt of the Police for him. It's a great book about cat and mouse, um, you know, uh, hunt across across France. And it's, you know, it was one of the first books that I read of that style, and it was brilliant. And you could just tell the amount of knowledge that Frederick Forsyth had that was captivating. Terrible remake with uh, Bruce Willis in, 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 yeah. the, in the title role. Yeah, uh, not good. Uh, right, I'm going to pick uh, another one, and this is uh, one I read many years ago, and it was my first introduction to big, meaty political thrillers. It was called The Hunt for Red October by one of the, uh, the giants of the genre. Tom Clancy. Um, so this was set at the height of the Cold War, and uh, it was about a, uh, a, a rogue Soviet submarine captain who planned to steal an experimental sub and defect to the West. Uh, and uh, a young CIA analyst, Jack Ryan, so this was the first of the Jack Ryan novels, uh, is trying to convince everyone from the American president downwards that he isn't just about to, that this uh, uh, Russian captain isn't about to start World War Three. He's generally trying to uh, help the West by bringing over this uh, this fantastic new uh, submarine. And not only did I find the book incredibly riveting because it was uh, obviously Tom Clancy has knew his stuff, not just his political stuff, but the technology that, that goes into a submarine and life on a submarine. Uh, but I also thought that the eventual movie version of this and it had one of your uh, one of your brethren in the uh, in the title role playing the Russian submarine. Well, well, a wonderful Russian accent at that. Yeah, Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just made me laugh so much every time he opened his mouth. But it was a, a fantastic movie. So that's my pick. I've never read the book, but I I, I love. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Of the film it is, you know, as you say, one of the best in that uh, genre. And there are others. It's like it's like Firefox is a similar sort of thing, except with an with a, an aircraft. Um, I'm going to bring it up to date a wee bit. Um, the Ghost by Robert Harris. Um, you know, Robert Harris, best known for Fatherland, but you know, just one of our all time greats. Um, and this is his take on, um, you know, let's let's face it, it's a very thinly veiled. Um, fictional account of somebody like Tony Blair. So it's Prime Minister Adam Lang, um, who is an ex-Prime Minister, and he is having his memoirs written by a ghost writer. Um, however, as part of this whole um, process, he's locked away on an American island, and his first ghost writer kills himself, or is supposed to have died from suicide. Um, and then another ghostwriter the, the, is hired to write the book. Um, and he struggles to find out the truth behind, A, that suicide, and B, Lang's past. Um, it's, it's a wonderful novel. Um, and there's so many parallels between it to our recent history of the Gulf War and the relationship between our then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and George Bush. Um, it's a great book. It's not my favourite Robert Harris novel. Um, that's always going to be Fatherland, but I will read anything that Robert Harris writes. I love Robert Harris. A uh, half-decent movie came out of that starring Ewan McGregor. OK, give us one last one. I'm going to go for House of Cards, which is very different from a lot of the others. It's very British. The original book uh, written by Michael Dobbs. Um, do you remember the, the TV series in the 80s, which I thought was brilliant with uh, Francis Urquhart, the chief whip, um, a cynical, manipulative politician determined to become prime minister. And it's about his rise up the greasy pole, um, <laughs> using everything, including murder. He's willing to use every secret he knows, every pressure point he can find, every dirty trick in the book to secure his own rise to power. Um, and... You know, that when it came out, there was very little like it. Um, it went on to inspire the American Netflix version, uh, which lasted for, what, it's five series? Um, the, original, the original, I think, was a three-parter, wasn't it? It was a great insight into British politics, um, and it was an electrifying vision of how exceedingly violent 
governing might be behind closed doors. Gave Kevin Spacey's career a second wind, I think, until he fell off the edge of a cliff uh, in the recent scandals. I thought it was just him going from strength to strength, and then this happened, as you say. Kevin Spacey won a couple of Oscars at the beginning of his career yeah. for American Beauty, and I can't remember what the other one was for. Uh, no, um, was it The Unusual Suspects, maybe? He sort of had a bit of a lull for a few years, and then he came back strong, I thought, with, with well, the House of Because he saved one of these... London theatres, didn't he? In charge of the old Vic for a while. He's had a varied career until uh, the industry booted him out. And uh, now yeah. I think he's just gone into hiding and he's hoping he doesn't get hauled into court like Harvey Weinstein, who's just got uh, 23 years, and deservedly so. Yeah, well, well, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, I am surprised, positively surprised, uh, by the length of the sentence handed down to him. I think a lot of commentators are because they thought, I think the guesswork was around about 10 years. And I think this is a damning indictment, not only on Harvey Weinstein, uh, but also I think it's a, it's a message, a very strong message that the judge was attempting to send across the world to say, look, this kind of behavior is not on. And from now on, it will be. It's a shame that it's taken this long for him to be called out on it and for the industry uh, and for, for work practices to change. Uh, but I think it's a good thing. Of course, of course, it's a good thing. Um, and what comes across, because I was reading um, Catch and Kill, the book by Ronan Farrow, uh, into the whole Harvey Weinstein affair, just what a a bully he was. Uh, and again, it's it's about unchecked power. It's you know he was he thought of himself as untouchable. He called himself the sheriff of New York um, and thought he was above the law thought he could do whatever he wanted. And for, you know, the best part of 20, 25 years, he did. He did get away with it. And that is the shocking thing. I, I understand that uh, values have changed over time, but I think that 90% of his behaviour across that period was always beyond the pale and criminal. There's a brilliant article that I read by uh, Salma Hayek, and she she wrote it for a national newspaper and she goes into great detail about some of the shenanigans that this man got up to when she was trying to make her way. And this is a woman who does not need to lie because she's she's, you know, incredibly famous, incredibly successful in her own right now, uh, incredibly wealthy. She married a billionaire. Um, so she she's coming from a position of strength and telling what the, what I felt was the absolute truth. And it's just. If you read this article, then you, you understand that this man really was a, a, a real, oh, what's the right word that I can use on air without offending anybody? <laughs> use it. Use it. No, no, no. We're a, fam we're a family show. Talking about family shows, mum is on her way back from India as we speak. She is on a plane, so she will be back for the next episode. So this is a funny thing, going back to coronavirus. So I was saying to mum... Um, you know, because it's going to get really bad here, Mum, in the next couple of weeks. And you are of the age, almost, uh, which is the, the high-risk age group. Uh, why don't you just stay in India for a couple more weeks? And and Mum's funny. Mum, I don't know if it's just Mum or it's just... She's, she she verges between two extremes. So at one point, no, I won't get it. She thinks that she's immune. Um, and if you say, Mum, you're not immune, you're going to get it. There's a big chance. Uh, then she gets very fatalistic. I'm going to die anyway. You can't stop. You know, when your time is up, your time is up. I'm like, well, that's like saying you can just stand in the middle of a road and wait for a car to hit you. Um, so, yeah, I'm a wee bit nervous that mum's coming back because India hasn't recorded many cases. Now, I just don't know if that's because they're not testing people. It's because the coronavirus reached India, had a look at what else was out there and just ran away. <laughs> Oh, scared. <laughs> Bloody hell, malaria. This, that, this. Bullied, by, bullied by the local viruses. Right, Abir, that's been absolutely uh, fascinating. And uh, I wish you and yours all the best as you hunker down in your beer bunker down in... Uh, down... I wish me luck finding avocados in Guildford. Because <laughs> right? it's, it's difficult right now. It's difficult. All right, mate. I'll see you later. Next up is an interview with Kia Abdullah, travel writer and crime author of Take It Back. With Abir lying low in Guildford, I caught up with Kia at the show. Today I'm at Hachette offices chatting to Kia Abdullah, travel writer and author of gripping courtroom thriller Take It Back. Kia, welcome to the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast. Thank you for having me, Bas. So, of course, the first question, having uh, seen the wasteland that London has become on my way to the Hachette offices, is just how are you dealing with the corona panic? 
Oh, well, I'm very much of the keep calm and carry on ilk. So I've been taking the tube. I've been just packing my hand sanitizer and getting on with life. That said, I have had cancellations left, right and centre, including my own family. I have a new niece and I haven't <laughs> met her yet. So my sister's like, no, I am keeping my newborn away from all the people who have been on the tube. So mixed bag, I'd say. Well, clearly your niece doesn't want to meet you. Well, so. <laughs> well, she's engineered a whole national crisis, <laughs> international crisis. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's begin at the beginning. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Tower Hamlets in East London in a family of eight children. So there was always high drama in the house, which is fantastic for a writer. Uh, Tower Hamlets is funny because I think it both hindered and encouraged my ambitions to be a writer. So on one hand, Tower Hamlets is, I think, the UK's worst area for child poverty and I think we all agree that poverty or low income is a really high barrier of en to entry when it comes to the arts. On the other hand, I had fantastic material. So whether that's the kind of grit and flow of street life to some of the issues that I chafed against as a youngster, all of it was just brilliant material for a writer. And where were your parents from? Bangladesh originally. I think they came over in the 70s. It's something that I should know, but uh, I was born and raised in London. And have, do you go back or have you been there? I have been back once when I was four, so I can barely remember right. anything, okay. and once when I was 13, so okay. very young. And you initially found fame so uh, with uh, an online travel blog, which uh, is called Atlas and Boots. So tell us about the journey from school to... Sure. Boots. Well, I think fame is being a bit too kind. But uh, yeah, I had quite a convoluted career. So I always wanted to be a writer. So at the age of 14, I did my work experience at the Sunday Times magazine, because I always knew that that's the path I wanted to follow. But when it came to choosing my A-levels, I chose the typical Asian path of doing you know, maths and IT and that sort of stuff. Did computer science at university and worked in IT for a few years. Um, but eventually I went back to my first love. I pitched a column to Asian Woman magazine, if you still remember that magazine, and saw my name in print and I thought, God, you know, this, this is what I want to do. So I quit IT, took a 50% pay cut to go and do a full, take a full-time role at Asian Woman, worked as sub-editor there for a couple of years and then features editor, freelance for a few years. And then I quit my job in 2014 to travel around the world with my partner, who's also an avid traveller. He's a really skilled photographer and I was a writer, so we decided to pool our resources, start Atlas and Boots, our travel blog. And six years later, it, it gets read by a quarter of a million people every month and it pays wow. my bills, which is great. Wow. So yeah, happy I days. understand the Atlas part, but what's the boots part? Hiking too? boots. Oh, so hiking it's an outdoor boots. blog. So right, walking. okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So no lying on the beach. No, 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 that's not really our jam. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so what is the craziest or the weirdest thing that you have encountered whilst on your journeys around the world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if it's crazy or weird, but I'll tell you about the scariest thing that happened. Before I start, I should say that I don't scare easily. So I've done, you know, one of the longest bungee jumps in the world. I've jumped out of a plane twice. I've hiked to Erta El Volcano in Ethiopia with an armed guard. So I don't scare easily. But, but have you read one of Abir's books? Because that's scary. <laughs> well, of course. It's one of the 100 best crime and thriller novels of the last 70 years. So of course I have. Right, so we were in Namibia on a self-drive holiday in Atosha National Park, which is famous for being lion territory. All the literature right. says, whatever happens, do not leave your vehicle. And I'm a very much a stickler for rules, especially when it comes to the outdoors, because, of course, it's, you know, the rules are there to protect you and the environment. But we got a flat tyre and we were in a remote corner of the park, didn't have phone reception, couldn't call anybody. So we're sitting there for 15 minutes debating, what do we do? Eventually we decide, OK, we're going to change the tyre. Peter says to me, you keep an eye out for lions, because apparently they're not train killers uh, and me being a girl from London I apparently can spot lines in the wild so I'm standing there sweating buckets he's sweating buckets putting the tire on we're both not saying a word because internally I think we're freaking out he said to me if you see something get in the car and blare the horn in the end he managed and he was fine we got in the car locked the doors laughing hysterically from relief but half a kilometer down the road we see a lion underneath a tree and we realized that this story could have ended very differently mm -hmm. so I was very relieved that it didn't end that way what aren't you supposed to go out and roar really loud at the lion 
Or is well, that bears? Is well, that what you're supposed that's to do? That's bears, that's firstly. Bears. But right. also, I mean, don't they, do that. No, don't, don't, don't take do my that. advice, don't people, on dealing with lions. <laughs> no. They say that if you're in a vehicle and the you know windows are open, they still see you as an entire entity. But if they can discern you as a separate entity from the right. vehicle, then okay. they will come after you. Okay, not good. No. Right. Uh, so now tell us about Take It Back. Sure. So Take It Back is a courtroom drama in which a 16-year-old girl called Jodie accuses four classmates of rape. Jodie is white and the four boys are from immigrant backgrounds, so that immediately draws the attention of the press and the public. Meanwhile, an ex-barrister called Zara is persuaded to take on Jodie's case, and together they enter what becomes one of the most explosive criminal trials of the year, exposing ugly divisions in British society. So I wanted to write not just a gripping courtroom drama, but something that explored a little bit deeper and interrogated the ways in which we tend to judge people based on what they look like or what they believe in. Well, we, on various episodes in, the, in this series, have talked about uh, issues around diversity and, and how... Um, the creative arts view uh, people from different backgrounds, backgrounds of colour. So your book in particular really explodes a few a few myths, slaughters some sacred cows. Uh, what in particular were you trying to explore as a theme within this novel? So I suppose the first thing to say is that Take It Back can be read as a pure thriller. So if you don't want mm -hmm. to engage yep. in some of the deeper themes, you can just read it as a thriller and try to decipher who's telling the truth, who's guilty and so on. But I did want to explore something deeper. I would say the main theme of the novel is probably prejudice from a race and faith point of view. In the novel, the four boys are Pakistani and Bangladeshi. They're all Muslims and that is used against them in the media. So I wanted to use that context to explore how people are treated in the media and in the public based on what they look like or what they believe in. I also wanted to explore tribalism. So in the novel, Zara, the ex-barrister, is Muslim herself and her family can't really fathom why she would go up against right. four Muslim boys. Yeah. And that sort of kind of extreme loyalty stroke tribalism is something I've seen in life and wanted to examine in fiction. And I would say the third kind of theme is mob mentality and how the press and social media are used to kind of incite passions against people based on what they look like. Yeah, increasingly so, as we see every Absolutely. day. I, I, I would say that there's a fourth theme that I, I thought I saw when I was looking through this, and that's the fact that... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Zara herself, she comes from a Muslim background, she's a woman, but she's an empowered woman from this particular background, and we don't see many examples of that, uh, of an empowered Muslim woman in literature. What was important for me was to show that a Muslim woman isn't a homogenous thing, so there are different varieties of them, and Absolutely. Zara is one variety. Some people have said She's, you know, she drinks, so she's not a typical Muslim. But what is a typical Muslim? I know lots of Muslims who drink, for example. And so mm -hmm. that was important for me to just show a different face. One or two people have sniped at the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the four accused are, are Muslims. 
what would you say to anybody who did want to use that as a, as a, as a form of criticism? Sure. I mean, it's really interesting to me because in the novel, both the protagonist and the antagonists are Muslim. So both the good guy and the bad guy, so to speak. And so, you know, Zara, so I think the problem lies with people who think that Zara isn't Muslim enough. Right. I've had somebody say to me, Zara as a name isn't Muslim enough because it could be a white name. Okay, and that's strange. It yeah, is, well... It is a Muslim name. It, it is a Muslim name and, and... And a white name. And a white name. Yeah. And they've also taken exception to the fact that she's an ex-barrister because that's not typically Muslim, which I found really problematic because... And, and downright offensive, Well, exactly. Are you saying that Muslims can't be or aren't barristers? But separate to that, the four boys are hardly particularly devout or traditional themselves or any more Muslim than Zara is shown to be. So it's absolutely not the case that the devout Muslims in the book are shown to be bad and the progressive Muslims in the book are shown to be good. I think there's balance there. But in terms of the kind of broader narrative for boys being accused of rape, for Muslim boys being accused of rape, that was a way for me to examine some of the almost de facto ill treatment of Muslims in the media. You know, one of the whole points of the book is that we do things both good and bad because we choose to do them as individuals, not because of the colour of our skin. You know, in fact, one of the characters spells this out in the novel. He says something like, it's one faith, but we're not all the same. And the only actions I can be said to represent are mine. Now, that's hardly subtle. But I think if you're a minority writer, you're always going to attract criticism because you can't you can't represent the whole minority. And I think the key is just to have more Muslim writers writing a breadth of stories, both negative and positive. And I think you're absolutely right about about not just Muslims, but but most faiths being lumped as one thing. Um, So you take Hinduism. Hinduism is not one thing because you have castes and the way that people deal with each other within these castes are terrible at times if you're at the lower end of that spectrum. But Christianity itself, I mean, there's plenty of factions around the world and you've got Protestant versus Catholic and uh, Muslims at their very very basic level. You've got Shia Muslims and you've got Sunni Muslims. And a lot of people, you know, possibly listening to this podcast would not really know what that what that means. Um, I mean, it doesn't really mean that much. It's just a slight difference of of opinion uh, in terms of historical interpretation of uh, of certain events that happened at the beginning of uh, of uh, of Islam. Um, so I think it's quite nice to be able to sort of delineate some of these some of these faces and give people a different perspective. Um, we're talking about uh, diversity in in a roundabout way in your in your book um, and your experience within the industry and and you talk about that. Although I think, like us, you're also getting quite fed up of Just talking a little about bit. it, and you know we feel like it's it's you know been there, done that. It's time mm. to move on and and talk about other things. But you on a on a blog that you wrote, you were once invited to you you talk about being invited to a conference where the organizer started. And this made me laugh by basically saying he was delighted to invite you because you ticked all the right boxes, uh, mainly that you were not white and you were not a man. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't know if his heart was in the right place and that was just clumsy wording or if he literally just wanted to tick a box. But yeah, for, for me, that was really offensive. I think the way he should have started is with my credits and, and then maybe I would have been a little bit more positioned to say yes. And, and, and so, yeah, I think people just haven't got it right yet when they are approaching di- diverse, in inverted commas, diverse writers. Yeah, yeah. Um... It just made me laugh because you're not white and you're not a man. It's the sort of thing that a bear gets invited on on that basis as well. But he's going to kill me when he hears that. Uh, for those of you who are wondering where a bear is, um, a bear was unable to join us today because his uh, his young son was coughing this morning and he thought for the sake of prudence, it will be better for him not to show his face in central London. I'm actually kind of glad he's not here because I'm pretty sure I'd be far less articulate because I'd been tranced by that Scottish accent. <laughs> Don't say that. He's going to go to his head now when he <laughs> listens to this. In the same blog piece, you talk about how it bothers you about if you're only asked to talk about diversity. And obviously we know the feeling, so uh, clearly we're going to ask you to speak about well, diversity. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, but perhaps you could tell us whether you think the industry is changing. Well, it's interesting because... I'm not sure you can make draw a conclusion without stats. 
and I listened to your brilliant episode on the diversity debate and I know that Aisha had some positive news. I keep going back to the figures from 2016. So of the thousands and thousands of books that were published that year, fewer than 100 were by British authors of colour. And that to me is completely baffling. And I do think things are changing, but when I take a step back and think how many British authors of colour do I know, I still think it's probably around that number. And so have things changed? I don't know. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I launched AsianBookList.com, which is a way for people to discover new books by British Asian authors, because I was just so tired of the same questions. And I, you know, it does have an ulterior motive. It's to get people in publishing industry and the decision makers to look at the list and think, why are there so few being published? Why aren't there more? And so to just reckon with the imbalance in their own publishing houses as well. Absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's let's dole out some advice. So what is your writing process and what sort of advice do you have for, for budding writers? Ooh, okay, so I suppose my advice is don't wait for permission. Uh, because there are so many gatekeepers, start a blog, you know, don't look at it as a money-making exercise because that's very hard. But don't wait for permission, build your credits so you have a body of work when opportunity comes knocking. In terms of my process, I'm very much a planner. And so I need a really strong kernel of an idea that ideally, you know, a high concept that can be communicated quite easily. But after that, I am very much spreadsheet, monster hey, spreadsheet. Great. Join the club. Yeah. Me and a beer do that. Okay, club. good. Yeah, planning out your chapters. I have, you know, a, a character tab where I download pictures of my characters so I know what mm-hmm. they look like, um, their heights and so on, which is really useful now because my next book is actually the second in a series and I didn't write the first as part of a series so you forget things like how tall was my character again how old was she when this happened so it's really useful to have all that information in a spreadsheet okay brilliant Stephen King famously said that he doesn't plan I don't really believe him but you know it could be true I don't understand pantsers I don't understand how you write a book without pantsers I mean I love Stephen King although he did go down in my estimation a week or so ago when he complained about Woody Allen's book being Ah, uh, yes, I saw that. Uh, I understand he, the argument he was trying to make as to what happens next, but I think sometimes sometimes the, the industry makes the right decision. Yeah, I, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen said something about freedom of speech isn't the same as freedom of reach. And right. I thought that was a really good way of looking at it because you have all this debate about deplatforming people, but you're not silencing them by deplatforming them. You're just not allowing them to spread their Absolutely. hate to... I mean, not, not this isn't to do with Woody Allen, but kind of people out there who do yeah. spew hate. It's about not giving them that freedom of reach. Yeah. Let's take it a little bit lighter in tone now. So I know that you're uh, a big Star Trek fan, as am I. <laughs> so Don't is, judge me. Who is, who is your favourite Star Trek character? Oh, easy. That, that would be Captain Janeway. Um, ah, so I assume that's also your favourite Star Trek captain. Car- oh, yes, of course. Okay. Well, I mean, look, you know, I'm a, I'm a girl, so that that's kind of the obvious answer. But when I was younger, I saw very few female characters on TV with authority over men, but who weren't sexualised. And she was just a brilliant character. I remember after she was made a new captain somebody referred to her as Sir, and she responded saying, despite Starfleet protocol, I don't like being addressed as Sir. I prefer Captain. And I, I just thought, yes, Queen. Yeah, you yeah. know, and that was just so nice to see. And so, I, yeah, she's I, definitely... I like Janeway. I like the whole thing about how Star Wars has made the journey from being quite a chauvinistic program. Because Captain Kirk, you know, as much as Star we might Trek, like it. Star, Star, Wars. Star Trek, sorry. Oh, sacrilege. Um, well, I love them both, so I sometimes get the names much Which about. one would you choose? Or if I had to choose because of the mess that was made of the Don't middle, heart, middle set of Star Wars, it would be Star Trek. Okay, good. Go <laughs> right. We yeah. can stay friends. Because, because Star Wars, first three brilliant, the rest not so much. But, you know, we start with Captain Kirk, who is quite a chauvinist, and yes. the way his depiction of, mm-hmm. of, of, of women on, on that first series was not great. Um, but now we've come all the we've made the whole journey yeah. to I think well, who's the latest captain is it Scott Bakula that's it was the yeah. last one so Quantum Leap Quantum Leap uh, Scott Bakula so we're showing our age now uh, no we're not we're showing our knowledge of the sci-fi <laughs> domain sure. which is a good thing alright we'll finish off by just asking you what are you working on next sure so I am working on the follow up to Take It Back it's not a sequel it's a different case but with the same character as I said before, I didn't write Take It Back as the first of a series, but 
publishers often really take to a character. And well, want your to book's you. been successful. Well, so thank you very much. You thank you. So yeah, we're returning to Zara. This one will be set in an elite all-male boarding school. And uh, that's probably all I can say for now, but that should be out next year, depending on publishing schedules, which can we, change. We, we will look forward to it and we look forward to having you back on to talk about that. Thank you. Um, and if you haven't read Take It Back, it is worth a read because it's a very it's a challenging read, but it also uh, highlights uh, aspects and, of society that all of us are, are dealing with at this moment in time, other than the coronavirus pandemic, obviously. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Please. Thank you. Bye. Right then, who are we going to talk to next, Vass? Well, given how uh, how we all seem to be in a state of uh, panic, hysteria and depression over this uh, coronavirus, uh, we are going to our regular uh, messenger of good news, Aisha. Ah, you sure she won't make things worse? Aisha, are you there? I am here. How are you, messenger of good news? I am keeping well without flu or cold or any other coronavirus symptom. Good, good. That's good to hear. Just remember, I hope you have a handkerchief to your mouth and that you are washing your hands as you speak. Um, yes, obviously. Can't you hear the running water in the background? I thought that was vast in the toilet. But anyway, let us crack on. What good news have you got for us? So in these medically precarious times, I have some good news about health. Ah. Despite reports that one, one dog tested weak positive for coronavirus, most experts agree that people don't have to worry about their household dog or cat being at risk, either of spreading the virus or getting sick themselves. Um, I mean, washing all those paws would have been a bit of a drag, eh? <laughs> how, did, how did the dog get it? Do they know? It ain't, it ain't a bat. Presumably the owner licked its mouth. I'm glad you said mouth. <laughs> well, I don't know any other way you can contract the virus, yeah. other than that it's airborne, obviously. So that's good news for dogs, but yeah. um, you got any good news for humans? Um, yeah, um, on March 10th, China recorded its lowest number of new coronavirus infections since the disease first spread, um, and the number of new infection, infections has been dropping steadily over there, so that's good news, I think. Well, why is that? Is that because of their draconian measures to quarantine everybody or? I'm assuming so, yeah. I mean, I think 80,000 people were infected and 3,000 people died. So they, I think they've been pretty gung-ho about it, haven't they? An ambulance coming for you in the background. You lied, didn't you? Is the police coming to arrest you? <laughs> it's someone on the street spreading the disease. Ah. So It's not a zombie apocalypse. It's getting better in China and that is good news. And also, my mum tells me, because mum's supposed to be coming back this week, but I'm trying to persuade her to stay yeah. in. There haven't been many cases in India, and I don't know if that's just because they're not being tested, or um, the climate, because mum says it's now north of 30 degrees, and I read somewhere that uh, viruses like the flu and coronaviruses don't do well in humid conditions. No, I think something like 26 degrees and above is where they're more kind of rampant. So should we all just go to mum's place in India rather than get mum back here? Yeah, should we take all our listeners as well? I think we should. Uh, open open house at mum's place in Calcutta for all of you. Um, bring your own mosquito nets. Um, yeah, you might get malaria, but you won't get coronavirus, possibly. <laughs> Next bit of good news. Have it all, can you? Um, so, you know how our mothers, speaking of mothers, have always said that haldi or turmeric, is yeah. the cure for everything? It is. Yeah. Well, scientists have potentially discovered a way to help the compound called curcumin, which is found in turmeric, be absorbed in the body to help prevent and even reverse the effects of cognitive damage, specifically in Alzheimer's. So that's good news. What's that in English? What what's what in English? The whole of that Cog last sentence. Cognitive damage. Aye. It just means memory loss. Um well anything that um means the deterioration of the brain. Memory loss. Oh, that sounds very, very familiar. It it could also help cure genital herpes, but I don't really want to talk about that right now. Why? Because I mean, there's only so much that you want to really... Um, so much good news we can take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I, don't, I feel like genital herpes isn't really on brand with the but whole red hot chili Turmeric is a cure for genital herpes. Apparently, yeah. That's probably true because I've never met an Indian with genital herpes. I've never really met um, anyone with genital herpes because how would you know, Abir? How would you know? Well, they're not, they're not taking their daily dose of ter- turmeric. That's how you know, Aisha. It's um, usually written on their driving licence. <laughs> Now, there's another piece of good news, because I, I like that. I like that. And I think, I think you know, uh, European people and white people in general could do with more turmeric in their lives. Although, have you seen places like Waitrose? Yeah, I was, not only have they jump, jumped, rather, on that rickshaw, um, yeah. they have capitalised on it, and it has now become a kind of monetized asset, this idea of turmeric. Why do they have to do that? Huh? Because, you know, gentrification... Do you know what? Some American will try and bloody patent it soon, right? You know, oh yeah, this is a health cure. Uh, turmeric, yeah. I think, I think they've already done that. Oh, what? This is not fair. This has been around for millennia in India. I went to the supermarket today and the shelves yeah. were bare of turmeric. People were panic buying it. Yeah. So what are you using to cure your genital herpes? <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, true story, um, I, when I first twisted my ankle, uh, my mother made a mixture of flour, uh, turmeric and uh, milk and m- mashed it all up together and put it as a poultice on my ankle. I thought she was mad. Uh, it didn't really help, but, you know, clearly she, she understood the powers of turmeric. Didn't it work? No, of course it didn't bloody work. <laughs> you had a nice yellow ankle, right? But if you look at the skin on that ankle now, it probably looks 10 years younger than the skin round about it. There's been a breakthrough treatment plan for type 2 diabetes. The research has proven almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that type 2 diabetes is actually reversible, especially in newer patients. And the treatment is... No. (laughs) That would have been a good punchline, though, eh? (laughs) The treatment is a prescription for a reduction in calorie intake and so will consist of a liquid diet of 800 calories to be taken as a soup or shake daily for a set amount of months. And it will depend on the time since the patient actually developed the diabetes. Ah, so... Um, basically, eat less. Yeah. Well, it's, it's brown people, Asians or South Asians, are very susceptible to diabetes, aren't we? So this, is, this is good news. And they're going to begin the trial in April this year with yeah. the 5,000 participants. Say, But this is one of those cases where the cure sounds worse than the actual uh, disease because... You know, months of a liquid diet? No, doesn't yeah, sound good. Losing your foot, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what do you need your foot for anyway? What do you do with it? Well, well I put turmeric on mine. <laughs> In a poultice. That's one question. While we've got you on, um, the budget came out and we now have a Punjabi chancellor, which is ridiculous behaviour, in my opinion, because Punjabis, as we all know, are spendthrifts. Well, he spent a lot of money today. Did you see it? Such a, you wouldn't get a Gujarati doing that. <laughs> the Gujarati chance, so there'd be no money for anybody. I thought you were Gujarati. No, I'm not Gujarati. My wife's Gujarati. I'm Bengali. We're the intellectuals. Oh, right. Our, our listeners are just baffled at this point. I think we're going to have to do an introduction. Like, these are just brown people. Let's not confuse everyone. Yes. Well, no, it's easy to explain. It's the difference between, say, a Londoner and a person from Newcastle. I don't think that's correct. It's it's regional differences. No, it's not. We have to do this properly in an episode and explain why Bengalis are superior to everybody. But I'll probably keep that for another episode. Dean didn't let me finish. I was saying that there are going to be 5,000 participants in April this year for this type 2 diabetes 800-calorie diet thingy. And if the trials are successful, the diet will become the new standard of care for type 2 diabetes, which has been causing amputations, blindness and heart complications for decades. So in your face, Vaseen. In your face, Vas. Thanks a lot, Aisha. I feel very much uplifted. Thank you. You're very welcome. Right, Abin, next we're off to talk to our good friend Alex, who, as you may or may not know, has been a lifelong fan of John Le Carrick. I haven't heard from Alex in a long time. Where's he been? Alex, are you there? Hey, yeah, how's it going, guys? Where have you been hiding? 
Um, well, I've been gearing up for the release of my brand new book, which is out this week. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's been taking a lot of my time. So it's called The Unbroken, and it's a brand new series. Uh, it features two female detectives. Um, one is a uh, British-Pakistani um, detective sergeant who's kind of like turned her back on the community after a forced marriage and quite a difficult life. So she's um, yeah quite wild now. And the other actually is um, a English detective who actually in later life, due to um, personal circumstances, actually decided to become a Muslim. So it's quite interesting um, dynamic between the duo and yeah, so I'm quite excited to release them onto the world. The one so Muslim and the other one's sort of having a crisis of their community. And, and yeah. what they, what's what's the crime? What are they? What are they? How are they thrown together? Yeah, so they they work together um, anyway. So they're in the same police unit. Um, the one who's having the crisis, she's become an apostate really. So that's kind of like okay. I want to explore that side as well. You know, it's kind of these things that happen in the headline. I just want to really. This whole idea that you know religion is a free choice as well so it's kind of like balancing that so i thought it'd be really interesting to right. you know it's not the main thrust of the novel but it's kind of like their characters and it's kind of like it's allowing me to say stuff about that side which i i really want to get across well we should talk about that properly on another occasion but today you're going to tell us about your love affair uh with john le Carre. Yeah, so um, I've I'm, I'm been a huge fan of his since um, I was very young. My brothers were all crazy about his books. So I read them, you know, at a very young age. And, um, you know, and then growing older, I became fascinated with espionage and everything, especially at university. And, um, yeah, he, he's, he's an absolute hero of mine just because I think he says things in, in this whole political thriller concept, which other people don't. He's very nuanced. He doesn't take one side of a story. He's, you know, he... He writes interesting, engaging, thrilling books, but he does them in a way where it's not kind of like hitting you over the head with a hammer. It's very detailed, very nuanced. What, uh, what is his background? Was he a spy? Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And, and actually, it's, um, I mean, he, he had a quite interesting life anyway. So, you know, I mean, uh, it's quite widely well known that his father was this, you know, amazing con man who, you know, spent his life basically just ripping people off and you know, John Le Carre would often then have to pay off his debts and have really embarrassing meetings with people when he became famous. But yeah, so he was actually approached to Oxford. Um, sounds yeah. a, that sounds a lot like our beer's life. <laughs> that is our beer, what are you talking about? <laughs> like... Constantly ripping people off. Yeah, and I'm the one who has to have the embarrassing meetings afterwards. Yeah, he owes me, he owes me 15 quid, so yeah, you know. Is it, is it 15? <laughs> with interest. Carry oh, <laughs> on. Uh, yeah, so he was um, approached by MI5 just to spy on socialists at Oxford University, and then after he graduated, he um, he went to, he became a public school tutor, but he hated it. So he wrote to MI5 and said, "Look, you know, can I join? Can I join you properly as a as a intelligence officer?" So he started off with MI5 for a few years, but then he got really bored, and then he transferred to MI6, and then you know, obviously went to West Germany and had that sort of international spying career. But it only lasted a few years, though, so it's not like he's a lifelong spy. So I think he was with the service for about six I, years. I have two questions immediately. Yeah. One, what kind of socialists did he actually find at Oxford? <laughs> I'm oh. struggling to imagine any socialists at Oxford. No, no, uh, yeah, that's, that's not true. I mean, at Oxford and Cambridge, Cambridge especially, was a hive of communist spies, wasn't it? All the... Um, the Cambridge yes. Four or Cambridge Six. Are you talking yeah. about the so-called champagne socialists? No, no, no. I'm talking about people like Philby, Burgess and McLean. You know, actual KGB agents who were at the top of MI6. They're all, uh, they're all recruited at Cambridge. Mm, yep. Intriguing. Um, yeah. The second thing I had to ask you was, we had this theory amongst the rest of the Red Hot Chili writers that, that you are actually a spy. And this, and this, and this is because you never have actually told us in, in clear terms what you do after all of these years. We don't really know. It's something mysterious that you keep hinting at. And we don't know what your real name is. <laughs> you have got about four different names, that's true. Yeah, and I'll come to that with John Le Carre as well. Yeah, I wish I was a spy, and you know what? If I was, I'd, I'd be the I'm worst spy in the world because... Hang on, hang on. Weren't you approached by MI5? Or was it MFI? Yeah. I can't remember. MFI. Yeah, so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You were, though, weren't you? I was, yeah. So I was at university. Um, basically, um, I don't know if you heard of a group called Hisbut Diarrhea. They're quite a... Wait, did you just say Hisbut Diarrhea? <laughs> <laughs> a lot well, of people say it is, it is diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. It's 
blow you up next week for that. Just the day were kind of like really hot on, on campus when I joined university. So yeah, MF5 were trying to get people to basically spy for them, you know, internally. So just just to make sure nothing was was gonna kick off early. So um, and so, yeah. did, did approach you. Yeah, so that that kind of happened at university, and then um, I didn't really go for it. But then after I graduated, I I did the civil service exams, um, and I applied to the foreign office. But um, surprisingly, my grades were quite good, so MI six then approached me to actually join them at the time, um, and put me through their recruitment process. But again, kind of like I just had the crisis, you know, when I was when I was going through. It, I thought actually no, I don't really want to want to go down that road so then I ended up with a different civil service department instead so I'm now imagining the film version of your life it's hang, hang on hang on even if you had got in would you tell us uh probably not <laughs> wouldn't be a novelist he's a spy verse <laughs> I was just about to say I'm, I'm imagining the the Roger Moore version of your life the spy who made me a curry no I think most spies are quite dull and like anyway tell us a wee bit more about the curry yeah, so um, he so he was born Cornwall, so obviously John the Curry is not his real name, um, and I think his life is quite out there. So I don't want to just rehash everything. You know, we all know he's right. He writes great novels, and they've been adapted for TV and everything. So what I thought I'd do actually was just go through a few facts which you might not know, or which uh, they're not okay. out there generally. But um, so first of all, like John the Curry, the name obviously we know is a pseudonym, um, and it's really interesting because he had some choices when he was picking his name, and these choices they just made me laugh. So he was given the choice of. Jean Sanglas, to sound French, I don't know. And another option was Chuck Smith and Hank Brown. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I love those names. Uh, it's not like the same ring as John Le Carre, though, does it? So, yeah. Yeah, what about Chuck Mukherjee? John Le Cashin Curry. So, yeah, so he doesn't like remember how he came with John Le Carre, but actually a lot of people have said, if you translate from the French to the English, uh-huh. um, a square John which is what John Le Carre translates as, that is actually someone who's a quite honest, forthright, and living a very straight life. And it almost seems like he was reinventing himself as the complete antithesis to his father, who was this very bent sort of man who was, you know, conning everyone. So so I think that a lot of thought actually went to it, even though now he claims he doesn't remember. Well, that's just one theory. So anyway. there, is another, there is another way of reading a square John. Uh, if you were in America, a square John would be a very uh, boring frequenter of a brothel. <laughs> that's that's someone I know, Abby. <laughs> I'm just shocked that Vasim came out with that. Um, well, it's a fact. That's what they call her, John, in America. Well, it's also a toilet in America, isn't it? Uh, that's, a, that's another interpretation. Yeah. A very boring toilet. I don't, I don't, I don't think that was the... <laughs> I don't think that's the effect he was going for. So Kim Philby, so obviously you referred to him as being one of the, you know, the, the Cambridge Four who defected um, to the Soviet Union. And actually when he described Le Carre, he said that he was actually a thoroughly bad lot and naturally bent man. And actually he was in line to become head of MI6 before Philby exposed him. So that's really interesting, actually. It's like... You're getting told off for exposing himself as well. <laughs> the loss of MI6 has been the gain of the literary world. Alex, that has been really intriguing and fun. Can I, can I just add one very quick last thing? About no. I, I thought it was very, very interesting. So some terms that we associate with espionage, like mole, honey trap, and tradecraft, yeah. they're actually invented by John le Carré, and then the MI6 and MFI adopted them afterwards. So I thought that was actually... Is that right? Yeah. So what was a mole called before it was called a mole? I've got no idea. Badger. <laughs> Obviously, badger. Badger. <laughs> right, we're going to finish there. But, and uh, just to remind everyone, Alex has a new book out, uh, The Unbroken. Uh, and did you say it was in the shops this week or is it yeah, online? It's, it's the digital release first and then paperback, I think, comes a few months later. Okay, brilliant. Thanks a lot, Alex. Good luck with the launch, Alex. And that brings us to the close of another episode. Once again, if you have liked the show, can we ask that you leave a review on your favourite streaming service? Um, right, Vass, I think we should also wish everyone out there um, good health. And if you do become affected by the, the virus, we wish you a speedy recovery. It's at times like this when we're reminded that we really are one interconnected global community. So stay safe. Amen to that. And on that note, Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, we have been the Red Hot Chili Writers.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.